Amen. That song never gets old. <clears throat> All right, well, today we're going to uh, continue our study of the book of Revelation. I'm getting fairly close to the end there. Today we're going to be reading chapter 17. So when you find Revelation chapter 17, would you please stand for reading God's word? All right, Revelation chapter 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman seated, sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, when I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman, and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that saw you was, and is not, and is about to rise from the bottomless pit, and to go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will marvel to see the beast, because it was, and is not, and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, and the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked, and devour her flesh, and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose, by being of one mind, and handing over their royal power to the beast, until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Alright, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we... We do thank you for your word, and thank you again for bringing us here today. Lord, um, help us as we consider this passage. I ask that you enable me to speak the very message you would have delivered. I ask that you grant your anointing. Enable me to speak with clarity and with accuracy concerning these things. Lord, so that your, your truth may be faithfully proclaimed. And Lord, as always, we ask that you open all 
ears to hear. Open our hearts to receive your truth. We want to acknowledge our dependence upon you. We bring nothing to the table but our sin. No ability that we can lean on when it comes to grasping spiritual things or attaining unto salvation. So, Lord, we, we acknowledge that just as Jesus said, with, without you we can do nothing. How tragic it would be for anyone today to sit under the proclamation of your word and walk out of here not knowing you, not getting it, not getting the message, having the enemy steal away that which was sown in their hearts. So, Lord, we we ask you to prevent that from happening. For your honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Okay. Um, we just finished. I'm just going to try to put us in context a little bit here and, and uh, just let you know what, what is going on here. Um, we just finished going through the seven bowl judgments, which um, are described as the last plagues where God is bringing the completion of his wrath upon the world. And, and uh, as I said in the last couple of weeks, um, and, and by the way, that's verse 15, uh, chapter 15, verse 1. In them the wrath of God is finished. For with them the wrath of God is finished. That is, God is pouring out his judgment on this world, or, or we could say on this world system. In, in, in other words, everything that stands opposed to him. Now, understand... And I'm, I'm thinking of Jesus' words, for example. He says, you're either for me or against me. You're either, you're either gathering with me or you're scattering abroad. So, so understand when we say everything that stands opposed to God, some things and, and some people are opposed to God and, and totally unaware of it. So, so in other words, if, you, if you're not with Jesus, if you're not following Jesus, if you're not obeying Jesus... And we've seen this kind of language already uh, in, the, in the text, and of course it's throughout the, the Bible. But if, if you're not living in obedience to Jesus, then, then regardless of what you profess with your mouth, or even what you think in your head, you are standing in opposition to Him. In other words, there's no, there's no neutral ground, there's, no, there's really no gray area. I mean, sometimes for us, things look gray, but that's because of our... Perspective, our limited ability to uh, to discern things rightly, but in reality, there's no gray area. Either either people stand with Christ or against Christ. Someone is either in Christ or outside of Christ, or the way we often say, either saved or lost. Right? So you're either one of Christ's sheep or you're not. And you may be a sheep, you know, walking around with a sheep tag not a dog tag, but a sheep tag, that says, I belong to Christ and still not be Christ. In other words, you, you might call yourself a Christian and not be a Christian. So when we talk about um, God bringing out His judgment on everything, everybody that stands opposed to Him, we mean those who are not following Christ, who are not living in obedience to Christ. Now, 
in the, in the seven bowl judgments, the last plagues, God completes His wrath against the world. And that's in this age. Because really that just brings us up to the judgment day where the final judgment occurs and God's wrath will be poured out on all who oppose Him forever. There's, there's a sense in which you could say it's never completed because you, you and I, if, uh, listen, if you go to hell, you do not have the ability to pay off your debt because it's that big. So if, if, if you reject the gospel and the payment that Christ made on the cross and you go to hell to pay your own debt because that's, that's the other option, that's the only other option, it'll never be paid up. The, Part of the, the great news of the gospel is that uh, you, you can, when Jesus pays the debt, it's paid in full. You can kind of picture one of those, if you, you ever had a loan paid off or something, and, and you, get it, you get it marked, paid in full. That's, that's the idea. When, when Jesus pays for your sins, they're paid in full. Now, if you opt to pay for them yourself, you, you never get that stamp of paid in full. So God's wrath is poured out on you or me, whoever we're talking about, forever and ever and ever. That's why chapter 2 back, it says, the smoke of their torment um, rose forever and ever and ever. All right? So when I say the completion of God's wrath, in, 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 uh, when, when the Scripture says that in chapter 15, verse 1, it's talking about in this age. That is, he, that is that's where it's final in terms of this age, and then comes the judgment day. Christ returns, and, and then comes the judgment day. All right, so that's where we're at, just having gone through the seven bold judgments. Now, I think chapters 17 and chapter 18 use these analogies, two different analogies here primarily, to, to really describe the same thing. In other words, we're, we're talking about the same thing, the fall of the world under the wrath of God. All right, so we'll just have to uh, try to... Uh, Lay that out as we go. But first, in chapter 17, you've got the judgment of the great prostitute. So that's the way it's, it's, it's presented here, this, using that analogy. And then in chapter 18, the fall of Babylon. Well, you, you're going to see, um, in fact, I'll mention it now in case I fail to later. But in, in chap, chapter 17, verse 5, the great prostitute has written on her forehead a mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. So in other words, who is this great prostitute pictured in chapter 17? Well, it's, it's Babylon the Great. She has this title on her forehead, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and earth's abominations. So you get over in chapter 18 and you have the fall of Babylon described in different terms. But what I'm saying is both of those things are signifying the same thing. In fact, in chapter 17, who does the prostitute represent? Babylon. But then we could ask the question, well, wait a minute, that's an analogy also. (laughs) So who does Babylon represent? And that's what we'll try to talk about this morning and, of course, next week too as we go through chapter 18. And, I, and I'm going to just say again, it's the same story we've been seeing over and over and over because there are particular points here that God is driving home. So let's, let's go through a little bit of it and then we'll try to um, um, talk about the meaning of the imagery a little bit 
and and then uh, and then I'm going to try to get into some application um, that we can take away, so that so that we know what this means for us in our in our life in uh, 2015. All right. So um, first of all, um, I, I want us to keep in mind this contrast that we we pointed out several times between. The people of the world, like I was talking about just a moment ago, in other words, those who don't follow Christ, those who don't live in obedience to Christ, and the people of the kingdom, Christians, those who are saved by the grace and power of God, those who belong to the kingdom of God. It's presented a a couple of ways here in this chapter, so let me just point that out before we we go further. Look in in verse 2, for example. in regard to the great prostitute, it says, With whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. Now, I pointed this out several times already, but that, that's a common phrase in the, the book of Revelation, the dwellers on the earth, and it's referring to everybody outside of Christ. One, uh, some people call the uh, the worldlings, okay? In other words, the worldly people, the worldlings. Or, uh, you know, one literal rendering I've given to you several times is the down-dwellers. That's the kind of a literal rendering of the Greek here. In other words, you know, we we as Christians, because we know from the writings of Paul, right, that our our home is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. Well, for those who are outside of Christ, guess what? This is their home. Their citizenship is here, period. So they are those who dwell on the earth. We are those who dwell in heaven. Uh, in a sense, okay? So, so you got the down-dwellers, or the dwellers on earth have become drunk with um, the wine of the great prostitute, of her sexual immorality. Um, look again in verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and to go to destruction, and the dwellers on earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will marvel to see the beast. So see, they fought, rather than follow the lamb, they follow the beast. Those are the dwellers on earth. That is, those are, that represents lost people. People who are of the kingdom, uh, who are of this world, and therefore are of the kingdom of Satan. And then they're also described as, as uh, in verse 6, as those who are drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Uh, all right, now, that's in contrast to those who dwell in heaven, for example, by implication. That is, the, the, people, of the, the, the people of the kingdom, the people of the kingdom of God are not identified, Christians are not identified with this world as, as uh, inhabitants of this world or citizens of this world. Our citizenship is in heaven. So you've got the dwellers on earth as opposed to those who dwell in heaven. And then another designation for uh, Christians here, a uh, couple of them that are stated in verse 6, the saints. I saw the woman, verse 6, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints. That's referring to Christians. She was drunk with the blood of saints and the blood of the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. In other words, Christians who are uh, murdered by her because of their testimony to Christ. All right, so, so there's, there's that contrast again between the people of God and the people of the world. The down-dwellers, those who dwell on the earth, that, that represents the people of the world. The saints um, are the people of God. Those whose names are not written in the book of life, that's the people of the world. That's, that's verse 
Um, what is that? Verse 8, by the way. Uh, their names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Okay, by implication, that's contrasted with those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. And then, too, you've got this whole imagery of the prostitute, which you would, um, one way of describing that, and we're going to try to get into it a little bit more here in a second, but one way of thinking about that, that type of lifestyle is, is no faithfulness, right? Alright, so, so that's set in contrast to the children of the kingdom who in verse 14 are called those who are called and chosen and faithful. Faithful. So, so you've got these, this running contrast all the way through the book of Revelation. In fact, all the way through the Bible. Uh, of the people of God versus the people of the world. And so there's this constant struggle between the people of God and the people of the world. The people of the world opposing God and all of the things of God, including God's people. All right? Okay, so let's talk about this um, analogy a little bit before we move on. The, the, the great prostitute. Look again in verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute. Now, why? Uh, here, we, here again, we, we've got imagery... Um, used to describe reality. Analogies used to describe reality. And we're seeing this over and over and over in the book of Revelation. I mean, it is, it is characteristic of this style, the genre which um, the book of Revelation belongs to, which we call apocalyptic. Um, so so it, it's characterized by all kinds of signs and symbols and analogies and metaphors. Okay, so this is one. The great prostitute. Why the analogy of a prostitute. Well, this is a, a common uh, metaphor in the Scripture. Um, I guess the easiest way to say it is, if, if, if you're familiar with the term hedonism, it, 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 that would be one way of describing it, a hedonistic lifestyle. But in other words, you're just living for this world and the things that this world has to offer. So you can think of it in this way, and this is where the analogy of the prostitute comes in. The idea is you're just selling yourself for the pleasures of this world without any thought or at least any serious thought to the consequences or, any, or without any realistic thought about the consequences and about eternity. Listen, our lives are short. Short. Well, I'm just <laughs> like everybody else, I guess, but I'm, I'm coming to realize that more and more with every passing day. You know, um, weird things happen like you, like you, uh, uh, you know, the, I, I almost, you know, I thought about this the other day. You know you're getting old because this, this happened to me. Cause you know you're getting old when you almost fall and it hurts. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm, that just kind of, uh, that's a real fall there. <laughs> <laughs> and then weird things happen, like, you know, you, you think about a, a memory that you have, and you stop and you think, and you go, wait a minute. You know, you, you think about some person like, my, my, my dad was younger then than I am now. You know, something like that comes to your mind, and it just kind of blows your mind, you know, because you always thought that your parents were just ancient, you know, when you were growing up. And so, you know, those realizations hit you. I'm, I'm older now than, you know, than my mom and dad were at, at you know, ex point in my life. (laughs) 
our lives are short, rapidly coming to a close. And I know if you're 20-something or 30-something or maybe in your teens or whatever, that just probably just doesn't seem like the case. Um, but uh, it, it will as time goes by. You, you're realizing, but boy, this, this is going fast. It's, it's, it's moving like a runaway freight train or something. It, it's going fast. So we ought to be thinking about eternity. That's what we're built for. That's what we're made for. Ultimately, yes, I mean, you know, God created us in this world to live in this world, but ultimately we're made for eternity. We are made to last forever. And you know what? Every single person is going to. The question is just how and where. In other words, how is that going to play out? There there are two options. You either spend eternity separated from God, suffering the torment that comes along with that, as you make payment for your own sin, which you will never, ever be able to pay in full. Or the other option is you spend eternity with Jesus in His presence, enjoying the fullness of the blessings that come along with being under the rule of God perfectly in perfect submission to God throughout all eternity. Having having perfect knowledge of Him and knowing the, the fullness of blessing that the psalmist describes that comes along with being in the presence of the Lord. That's what we're made for. We're made to live eternity, live throughout eternity, and we will. The question is just where. All right, so the idea of the imagery of the prostitute is that you're, you're, you're willing to just throw all that away the real blessings, blessings that are known in Christ, the real true pleasures that only come with knowing Christ and being in the presence of God, ready to chunk all that, sell your soul, as it were. In fact, that's why we use that kind of terminology, right? You, you sell your soul for temporary pleasure in, in whatever fashion that, um, that comes about. You know, maybe you're trying to, to get ahead in life uh, so you just you just you just put everything into career or something like that, and it becomes a god to you. So that that's what you go after. That's what you live for. That's what you you live and breathe for. You eat and sleep and drink, like we say. You know your career. Or, I and mean, that's just one example. And so what you're doing is selling. You're selling yourself for something cheap. And something that won't last. Exchanging that for something that will. Alright, so that, that's just one example, but that's the picture here. In other words, the world and, and the people that are in the world and of the world, living for the world, that's what they're doing. They're selling themselves. And this great prostitute that John is seeing in his vision is um, just, just putting herself out there for everyone to come and, and buy and take and taste and experience. But it's all a cheap counterfeit of the true blessings that God has made us to, to, uh, to enjoy. Now, I want, I want to say a couple of things here because several times here, well, let's, let's just look at the description, for example, of, of this prostitute and her, her, uh, her conduct. First of all, it says she's, she's seated on many waters. That's in verse 1. 
uh, and we're told later that, that that represents nations, people. In other words, um, she's having an influence on all of the nations of the world. With whom, verse 2, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality. That is, um, in fact, that's probably one of the things that she's, she's um, known for, you know, power and influence and that kind of thing. So the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality. And with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. Now, because this term sexual <coughs> immorality is used so many times here, and because the whole picture is that of a great prostitute, I want to say a couple of things about that. Um, primarily, right, as, as, let's just stay in the context for a second. As we're looking at the context of this vision in the 17th chapter of Revelation, primarily, um, that has nothing to do with literal sexual immorality. All right, I probably shouldn't say it has nothing to do with it, but I'm saying that's not the primary, that's not the primary thing. Because this is an analogy. She's pictured as a prostitute. But that represents something. And so the sexual immorality that she get, engages in and that she lures the, the nations of the, of the earth into and the kings of the earth into, that's, that's all picturing something. And, and ultimately, again, it's just this. It's just selling yourself for the things of this world rather than giving yourselves over in submission to Christ. Okay? The term sexual immorality, uh, the Greek term behind that phrase, it's a single word in the Greek. The, gr- the Greek word behind it is, where, is the word from which we get our word um, pornography or pornographic. Porneia is the Greek word, porneia. And that's where that word comes from. Now, no coincidence, though, that it's used the way it is because sexual immorality is, is serious sin. And let me, let me give you an example or two here. Um, turn with me real quick to Galatians chapter 5 where you've got the fruit of the Spirit set over against the conduct of the world, people outside of Christ. The works of the flesh set over against the works of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5. And one reason I'm doing this, and, and uh, uh, because it's used as an analogy here, and also because this is such a big uh, issue, literal sexual immorality, n- not in an analogous way, but literal sexual immorality is such a big issue in our culture today. And that's nothing new, by the way. It's just um, it's just changed. Um, in some way, the perspective has changed in some way. So, for example, um, I, I would kind of, just to generalize, kind of characterize it this way. A few years ago, uh, boy, it hadn't been that long ago. A few years ago, um, sexual immorality was downplayed. It was made light of. I would say a, a pro- probably a better way of describing our current situation is that it is denied in other words, there is no sexual conduct that is considered immoral anymore by the, wor- by the world. And you, and you can't even uh, speak of it as such and be taken seriously in the world. Um, but, but here's how serious the, the Lord is about it. And this is one reason uh, that this analogy is used over in, in the book of Revelation. Um, Galatians 5, and I'm going to jump in here, like I say, Paul's drawing a contrast. So, if you look down in verse 19, when you get to verse 
22, um, he, he goes into the fruit of the Spirit. But prior to that, he's talking about the works of the flesh. So, verse, verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident. There, there's our word, sexual immorality, porneia. Now, here it does mean literal sexual immorality. What is sexual immorality? I mean, I mean the biblical definition. Because, number one, there is a definition because it is an objective reality, in spite of what the world says today. And I, I guess if, if, if the world accepts any definition today, popular culture out there accepts any definition today, I would say this is probably it. They would define it as some form of sex without consent. And that's the only place they'll draw the line. So, of course, rape is an example of that. But that doesn't go far enough for the Bible. In the Bible, it is any sexual activity outside of the confines of the marriage relationship. And, and now, because of our situation today, I have to add <laughs> marriage between one man and one woman. So, any, any... In fact, as I said, this is the word we get our term pornography from. So even viewing pornography would fall into this category. Sex outside of marriage, um, sex in addition to marriage, like adultery would fall under, that's a specific kind, but it falls under the category of pornography. Any sexual activity outside of the confines of marriage between one man and one woman is sexual immorality. So, again, verse 19. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. And notice, um, far more here than just that one thing. Like I say, I'm pointing out that one thing because of what we're dealing with in Revelation 17. But far more on this list. Verse 20. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, that is language that our culture hates. Hates today. But it's the truth. And... uh the reason we speak against these things, not only sexual immorality, although, like I say, that's the hot topic in our culture today, but these other things too. The reason that we must not participate in them and the reason we must tell the truth about them is because those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, you know what I would do? Uh, Let me just again pull out one example here. When we speak about homosexuality, we get labeled bigots, homophobes. You know what I would do if I was a bigot and a homophobe? I would keep my mouth shut. You know why? Because Paul says, in more places than one, but we're looking at one of them here, people who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So in other words, if I really hated them, I would never tell them the truth. Because you tell them the truth and they might come to Christ. (laughs) 
And that's exactly what we want. We want them to come to Christ. People who engage in sex, sex, sexual immorality or homosexuality, which is, again, uh, uh, one form of sexual immorality, enmity, strife, fits of anger, people who are, are engaging in these things, we want them to know the truth, to come to repentance and be saved. And if we really hated them, we certainly wouldn't be wanting them to know the truth. I, I mean, if I really hated them, I'd just be saying, hey, go for it. You're going to get what's coming to you. More power to you. You know? Yours is coming. No, we, we tell them the truth out of love. We're, we're Hopefully, we're thankful for God's grace in our own life, and so we want... We want them to know God's grace as well. All right, that's how serious the sin of sexual immorality is. So, so, so it is used in Revelation 17 as an analogy to describe something horrendous, something offensive to God. Now, in, in Revelation 17, as I said earlier, literal sexual immorality is, is going to be a part of many, many things that have to do with this prostitute, what this prostitute is, the way that she's influencing the world. But, but what, is, what, is really, what, what really is, is being signified here? Who is the prostitute? What is the sexual immorality? Uh, what is, that is, what does it represent? What does she represent? What, is, what does her lifestyle represent? And I'm going to tell you, I've, I've, you know, I've been looking at these things, and, and some things I can tell you for sure, which I'm, fix, I'm about to do, and then um, some things I'm going to share with you, but I'll let you know. You know, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure, but I think this may be, may be the proper way to look at it. So um, what we have represented here repeatedly is the whole world system. That is everything that is anti-Christ. So just living in a way that ignores God, that ignores God's claim on us, Living for self rather than Christ. That's, that's what th- these things picture. Selling oneself. Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? You see, what he's describing there is, is someone who sells themselves for the world. So they lose their soul. They perish eternally. And Jesus is saying, where's the real profit in that? Of course, the answer is there's, there's not any real profit in it. But that's what's represented here. So this whole world system that has influence over all of the nations and over all of the kings, over all of the people who won't follow the Lamb, that is, everybody's rushing headlong after the world and the things of the world, living for the now living for the world instead of living for Christ, living for the temporal, temporal uh, pleasures of the world, which take on many, many and various forms, living for those rather than living for the pleasure of knowing Christ, what Paul called the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Living for this moment, which is so brief, I'm, and I'm talking about our lifetime, not, not just these seconds we have here, but uh, today... But, but this lifetime, which even if it, even if it extends a hundred years plus, it's a brief moment in eternity. 
And so that's, that's prostitution. Selling yourself for this moment, for, for whatever you perceive to be gain at this moment, instead of being committed to Christ and living for eternity, for the blessings of knowing Him now and throughout all eternity. And in that, I mean, you, you, can, you can think of, a, a, similar to someone who's committing adultery, you can think of the life of a, of a prostitute. There's just no faithfulness, no concept of one-man-ness, right? And that's the way it is for people in the world. There's, there's, there's no... See, for Christians, we're married to Christ. And we can't, we can't commit adultery. We can't commit spiritual adultery. Our, our affection has to be for Christ. We live for Him. But for the world, there's no concept of that kind of commitment. And it's all about self and it's all about the moment. And sometimes just blatantly, right? I mean, I mean sometimes most people, I guess, probably are, are quick to admit that. So we have slogans like, if it feels good, do it. Go for the gusto. Even, you know, have it your way, kind of commercial. The whole idea is live for the moment, live for me, live for now, get all I can get. That's what's being pictured here. That mindset has influence over the nations of the world. All of those people whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. And she's pictured as three different things here, but you you can do this in apocalyptic literature (laughs) without contradiction. She's pictured as being seated on... Mountain, many, many waters, which, which represents the people and nations of the world that we were just talking about. She's pictured as sitting on seven mountains. Eh, that may have an actual geographic re- uh, reference to it. Maybe I'll get to that in a moment. We're about out of time, so we'll see. If not, we'll try to talk about it tonight. And then she's also pictured as being seated on this beast that we've already talked about back in chapter 13. Um, and then there are many kings mentioned here. So I think the whole idea is um, she has influence over the nations, even those in power, kings. Now, n- notice a couple things here before we, before we quit, because I've got I to get this point uh, in here so that we can, we can uh, take away what I think is the main point and make application here. Verse 14. They will make war on the Lamb. Now, this is talking about all the kings that gather together. And we saw that again in the last chapter as well. They come together in unison. They will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. So there's again that reminder that Jesus will conquer. He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And then when it talks about the beast turning on the prostitute... Verse 16, the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast, and those are kings, by the way, or kingdoms, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. Now, I think the beast, um, uh, again, maybe we can get into this more later, but, but is, is pretty much synonymous with the Antichrist, capital A, this figure who will come on the scene at the very end of the age, and he's working together with the kings of, uh, that are represented here, and attacks the prostitute. Now, this is... One of the things that I've 
struggled with because she's of the world, they're of the world. They've been drunk on the wine of her sexual immorality. And, and, but now all of a sudden they're turning on her. And I'm trying to figure that out, right? How, how, does, how would they make war on the prostitute? Well, let me just give you a little bit of, of a... I mean, I'm telling you, I don't know this for sure. This is a little bit of speculation. And then I want to get to the main point. Um, but I think there may be something more in the, in the prostitute. There may be something more represented than just the world system. In fact, it, it may be something along the lines of uh, like false religion. In, in fact, the, the reformers um, pretty much took this to be a picture of the Roman Catholic Church, the prostitute. Uh, they, they, they saw that as being fulfilled in the Roman Catholic Church. And, and so then when the beast and the other kings make war on her that they've been committing fornication with all this time, but all of a sudden they turn on her and make war with her, then they, they you know, see that the fulfillment of that is in you know, the nations finally get enough and they turn on her and, and attack the Roman Catholic Church. I think I would broaden that out and say that that may be what it's talking about, but not, not, but, but not limit it to the Roman Catholic Church, but say just false religion in general. Well, why would that happen? Why would, why would the beast and these other nations turn on false religion? Well, for one thing, because the beast is going to set himself up as the only legitimate religion. So it makes logical sense that he would make war on not only the true religion, Christianity, but on other religions as well, do away with him, them, set himself up as the only one. But also, there's a pattern in the Scripture of God using one enemy to destroy another enemy. And we're, we're explicitly told that here. Verse 17, For God has put it into their hearts to carry out His purpose by being of one mind, and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. So God ordains that this prostitute be destroyed at the hands of these wicked kings and the most wicked one, the beast, the Antichrist. It's a fulfillment of God's will. Okay. Now, here's, here's the main point. Like I said, that's, as far as exactly what it represents, there was a little speculation, but here's the main point. First of all, verse 14. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. That's you and me, believers in Christ. So, Jesus will conquer all of the world powers that come against Him. In verse 17, God has put it into their hearts. So, even the wickedness that they are carrying out among themselves, or fighting among themselves... (laughs) is ordained of God. That is, He is bringing judgment on them through violence by one another. You know, one attacking the other. So, the main point, I think, in all of this, is John is showing us again, the Holy Spirit is showing John, and John is showing us that God is in control of all these events. So, this great prostitute, for example, that has all of this influence over the whole world, is going to be brought to desolation, to destruction. God is going to see to it. And the beast, the fullest expression of satanic power, along with, with all of his, you know, the, the other powers that align with him at the, in, the, in the last conflict, 
God will destroy. Here's an example. They are fulfilling the will of God. And in the end, God will destroy them and Christ emerges victorious. So, for Christians in the middle of a perverse world and suffering persecution at the hands of the beast and the prostitute, here's a reminder that God is in control. Listen, I'm just real quick. I, I hope, I, you know, I think about this sometimes through the week, probably not nearly enough, but I, I hope that you're as encouraged by these things as, as I have been as we've been moving through the book of Revelation. Because you see all of this stuff going on around the world, not just in the United States, but around the globe. We need to be reminded that God is in control. And He's working all things out according to His own plan and purpose we win. We win because He wins. It's, and it's not always going to look like that in this world. In fact, it's going to look like we're losing. But the truth of it ultimately is Christ wins, and therefore we win. Now, I said we're going to make some application. I'm out of time, so I'm just going to say it in a sentence or two here. This is, as I just said, this is primarily given to us as encouragement, assurance, that those who are in Christ will not be overcome by the world, but that Christ will overcome the world. But there's a secondary thing going on here that I want to point out just in terms of application. And I, and I think this is always the case. There's, a, there's a, a call here. Just in telling us these things. It's like, it's like a, a, an alarm going off. An alert. Destruction is coming. Destruction is coming for the world and all who are of the world. So the call is this. The call is to repentance. In fact, we're going to see that over in the next chapter where they are, the people of God are called to come out. Look, look Real quick, chapter 18, verse 4. I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people! Come out of her, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. So see, there's, there's a call. Come out. Come out now before it's too late. Stop the idolatry. John says, flee from idolatry in his letter. Paul says, flee fornication. That's the same word here, porneia, sexual immorality. That means, and there he means it literally. Stop committing sexual immorality. Any sexual act outside of the marriage relationship between one man and one woman. Stop doing that. Stop committing spiritual immorality as well. In other words, don't sell yourself for the cheap imitations of this world, come to Christ. Come, come to Christ. Come to Christ. So that's the application. We're, we're, primarily, we're giving these, these things for our assurance, and for the assurance and encouragement of Christians. But at the same time, these things are written down for anybody to pick up and read, right? So it's a, it's a warning, come to Christ before it's too late. Don't be among the dwellers on earth. 
be one of those who are called and chosen and faithful. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Would you stand, please? We'll be dismissed. Father, we thank You for Your Word and for Your grace, Your loving kindness. You could just... You could have never warned us about anything. You could have never given us a Bible. You could have never sent a preacher, a prophet, a scribe to write down Your Word for history. You you could have never done any of those things. You could have just sent total destruction and wiped us all out. And it would be right. And it would be just. But because You are gracious... You've given us Your Word. You've told us about these things. Warning us to flee for safety to Christ. And I pray this morning, Father, this afternoon, that if there's anybody in this room today who has not done that, they're they're still of the world, selling themselves for the things of this world, rather than surrendering to Christ. Lord, I pray, open their hearts to the truth, and may this be the day, the moment, that they flee to You for salvation. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.